Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the need for conservative opposition to Justin Trudeau's gun grab, big tech versus big government, and racist trash cans. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. And if you're typing the show out somehow, for some reason, make sure autocorrect doesn't get you. It is not, in fact, Canada's most irrelevant talk show, as I one time had the misfortune of telling a sponsor of the previous uh, carrier of the program. No, 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 it's not the irrelevant show. It's the irreverent show. And that is a, a very, very important distinction. I probably should have come up with a better tagline, but you know, know what we are very much embracing our irreverence on every edition of the show so thank you very much to those of you who are tuning in we've got a a lot to talk about today from big tech censorship and control and a a little game of brinksmanship actually a rather large game of brinksmanship between facebook and the government of australia that has a canadian connection but i also want to do a follow-up on what we started talking about earlier in the week with the liberal gun ban Now, Bill C-21, tabled by the Liberals, would do a lot of things. As I talked about, it would actually ban toy guns, and I've had the chance to look through this in a bit more detail. And the way the legislation's actually worded is just bizarre. You don't even need to be able to fire something from a device. If it looks like a gun... It is going to be illegal unless it's an antique. So if you've got, you know, for whatever reason, a a handgun paperweight or something, well, that's not going to be allowed because the liberals have decided they're going to go after the aesthetics and theatrics rather than actual gun crime. So that's one thing. The other part, though, is that the liberal bill will kind of indefinitely force you to either sell your gun to the government if it's one of the ones that they've prohibited or hold on to it without being able to do anything to it ever again. So if you've got a Mini 14, if you've got an AR-15, if you've got one of the 1500 models that the Liberals decided to ban, you can hold on to it if you want. You can't shoot it, you can't transport it, you can't sell it, you can't do anything, even pass it on in death. You can't do that. All you can do is hold on to it in a locked cabinet at home. In fact, I'm not even sure if you're allowed to clean it technically, because then the liberals would be asking, well, why'd you need to clean it if you haven't been able to use it since, you know, 2020? So this is the big problem is that you've got people that invested a lot of money building up gun collections, and they're now sitting on what Justin Trudeau has called completely useless devices. Take a look at this clip from Trudeau's press conference earlier in the week. We have, since last spring, uh, banned assault-style weapons in this country, 1,500 different models that can now no longer be used, shot in one's backyard, uh, 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 transported, uh, sold, bequeathed, transferred. Uh, Since last spring, uh, these assault-style weapons cannot be used in Canada. That was a significant step forward. We are now ensuring that uh, there is a buyback program so that... uh, Canadians who lawfully purchase these weapons are treated fairly and respectfully. And uh, now that they are next to useless as weapons, are able uh, to uh, obtain fair compensation for that. And there's almost a giddiness there. 
Because the government is giving you the illusion of a choice. They're saying, well, we're not forcing you to sell it back to the government. I say back. I mean, that that is the biggest misnomer of this all. They never owned it. It was never theirs. It's like build back better is now buy back better, except there's no back and there's no buy. It's just taking and here's a bit of money for you. So the government is saying, well, we're not forcing you. We're not confiscating it. You can sell it or you can just hold on to it, but you are sitting on something that is completely useless. This is basically the Liberals' scrap metal program, where they want to make every firearm in the country that they don't like a piece of scrap metal. So what is it that Canadian gun owners are supposed to do about this? I've had so many emails from gun owners since Tuesday's show that have been saying, I've got thousands of dollars worth of stuff. I don't know if the Liberals are going to give me fair market value for it. I have no idea how much I'll be able to get for this. And you've also got guns that have some sort of a sentimental value, but they were purchased to use. They were purchased to do sports shooting, to participate in, uh, in many cases, competitions, or for some people, hunting. They were uh, purchased with the intent of doing all of these things that are now illegal. And the question is, you know what, is Aaron O'Toole, if he wins, going to do anything about this? Aaron O'Toole had a press conference this morning, and I asked him about this in very clear terms, and the answer itself wasn't all that clear. Why don't you take a listen? This is the full exchange. You get one question and one follow-up at these press conferences, and I want you to listen to the question and the answer, because the answer on its own might sound fine enough, but not when you hear it in relation to what the question was actually trying to elicit. Good morning, Mr. O'Toole. The Liberals' firearms bill that was tabled earlier this week will give Canadians two options for a number of legally purchased firearms, either sell it back to the government or hold on to it indefinitely without the right to transfer, sell, use, or, or even bequeath it to someone else. And mainly, this is about guns that were prohibited by order and council back in May, those 1,500 models. If this legislation passes and, and you should subsequently form government, would you repeal this legislation and would you reverse those uh, 1,500 prohibitions? Thank you, Andrew. I think the Liberal Party and Mr. Trudeau need to stop misleading people when it comes to public safety issues. No one likes to see uh, some of the shootings we've seen in, 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 in the cities and, and some of the, the gang violence, criminal violence we've seen. Um, having an approach that that goes after law-abiding Canadians, hunters and people like that, is actually ignoring the real problem. Mr. Trudeau uh, and his caucus voted against a measure that was intended to stop the illegal smuggling of, of firearms from the United States, where if you speak to law enforcement, that is the vast, vast majority of the problem. So let's target the problem. That is what I will do as Prime Minister. I won't try and divide and mislead Canadians. I will try and actually target and prevent these these uh, firearms from getting in the hands of criminals. Uh, with respect, Mr. O'Toole, you, you didn't really answer the question there, so I'll try framing it in a different way. If you're a Canadian who has a firearm that you legally purchased that the Trudeau government has declared prohibited, will an O'Toole government make a change that will allow that Canadian to keep that firearm legally and use it the way they were prior to the prohibition? Andrew, let me be perfectly clear. We do not support this legislation because it's actually dividing Canadians and misleading Canadians. So we will have a totally different approach. The, the problem, as much as 80 to 90 percent of the firearms used in illegal activities, mainly in large cities, come from illegal smuggling from the United States. The Trudeau government has made that worse through inaction at the border in the last four plus years. 
that is where the resources need to go. And if we can partner with law enforcement provinces and cities to, to stop that illegal smuggling operation, that will be our key priority. It won't be trying to blame law-abiding people who are farmers, hunters, and sports shooters. The statistics show they follow the rules. The terrible attack Mr. Trudeau tried to use in Nova, Nova Scotia as some reason for this uh, was a terrible attack perpetrated by someone with illegally obtained weapons. That needs to be part of the dialogue so that we're not misleading Canadians as the Liberal government tends to do. So Aaron O'Toole is clear that he opposes the legislation. He's clear that he opposes the bill. What he was not clear about is whether he would reverse the prohibitions in May. And those prohibitions are actually, in a lot of ways, more meaningful than the bill itself. Because the bill does a lot of things that kind of facilitate those prohibitions. But the issue is that you can't use any of these guns that the Liberals prohibited because they are prohibited. So you need someone that's going to go back and say, anything that was a restricted before, will be a restricted again. Anything that was a non-restricted before will be non-restricted and make it so that these guns can be used for all the things that they were used for without issue up until May of 2020. The reason this is so important, and there is a lot of debate within the gun-owning community about this, is because I want a conservative leader. Actually, no, let me clarify. I want any leader any leader at all. I don't care whether it's conservative, liberal, green, NDP, PPC, libertarian, Christian heritage. I want any political leader to stand up and say, you know what? Guns owned by legal gun owners, by law-abiding Canadians are not the problem. I'm about issues, not partisanship, which means I want the best possible policy from any politician, from any leader. People all the time say, well, how dare you criticize this person because you're supposed to be on their side. My side is about the issues that I think Canadians care about and should care about, and certainly the issues that I care about. And as a law-abiding gun owner, I care about this. So there are a lot of people that have defended Aaron O'Toole's answer, saying, oh, well, no, 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 he, he can't say it. He's going to do it. He's on our side, but he can't say it because then the media will go after him. And sure, there's some truth to that. The media is, let me tell you, going to go after him no matter what. So if you think that him giving a, a waffly ambiguous answer about an issue like that is going to save him from the scourge of liberal media bias, well, you are sorely mistaken. So I actually don't have much time for the, oh, he's playing 3D chess argument that a lot of conservatives tend to use. This is not just about Aaron O'Toole. In general, this is a longstanding problem where they say, no, 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 no. We, they, they're on our side, but, but they can't do this in, until they, they get in and get a majority. We heard that for the entirety of Stephen Harper's premiership. From 2006 to 2008, it was, okay, yeah, yeah, he's new. Uh, you know what? He can't do X, Y, Z because he, he's only just gotten there. Uh, just wait until he wins another election. And then from 2008 to 2011, it was, okay, yeah, I, I get it, but he's in a minority now, so you got to wait until he has a majority. Then that's when, you know, it's just open the floodgates. And then 2011 came. Stephen Harper had a majority government. Now, I am a, a big fan of Stephen Harper. I think he did a lot of good. I think his government did a lot of good. And I think he was a great steady hand through a very difficult time in Canada for economic reasons predominantly. And the Stephen Harper government did a lot of good. But all of the things that hardcore red meat small C conservatives were promised when he got a majority didn't happen. Senate reform. 
being one of the big examples of this, dismantling the CBC, the CRTC, taking aim at some of these institutions that have become so antagonistic to conservatives. Supreme Court appointments. Look at how a lot of these decisions by Harper-appointed justices have landed against free speech and other constitutional freedoms in the years since. So this idea of just wait until they're in there, then you get what you want, just doesn't work. So I don't have a lot of patience for it when people start defending answers that should have been very easy, that aren't given, because of, well, you know what, he, he, once he gets in, he's going to do that. If you vote anyone, anyone in on the premise that, well, they didn't say they supported what you care about, but you know they do deep down. You're actually sorely disappointed when you actually have no leverage that you can use against them once they are in. And this is a general idea, by the way. Because if you vote someone in based on just this idea that maybe they're on side, but you have nothing to hold them accountable with, you're actually a big sucker. And I say this for any gun owner or any group that has an issue it cares about. Don't expect that someone will be there for you if they're not prepared to take a stand for the thing you care about when they are running. We heard lots of things from Aaron O'Toole during the leadership that he was going to do. Some very specific things. One of them is defunding, well, uh, to be honest, privatizing, fully privatizing the CBC. You can't weasel out of that. That has to be part of the conservative platform. He took a stand for gun ownership. Now, granted, the prohibition had happened by the time the conservative leadership race came around. But now that Aaron O'Toole is the leader, I want to hear someone say, yeah, you know what? All these gun owners who are sitting on things that are now prohibited, help is on the way. Don't sell them back to the government. If a conservative government is elected, you're going to find that we are there for you. That's what I would have liked. Something clear, something concise, and not something that leaves people with more questions than answers. And the stakes are very high. I would say pro-lifers and gun owners are the two most mobilized, organized groups on the right in Canadian politics, or generally on the right. The left has labor unions, conservatives by and large don't, but organized issue groups like the gun community and like social conservatives, they are very powerful. These groups combined, either on their own or together, theoretically, not that they care about the same things necessarily, these groups are tremendously powerful and can sway nominations, can sway leaderships, and actually can sway elections. And I did an interview with Ezra Levant over at Rebel News yesterday in which I talked about this. And I said, you know, standing up for gun ownership is probably not going to get you many votes from the left to the center. But not standing up for gun ownership is going to cost you a lot of votes from yourself. And people will say, well, I mean, who else are gun owners going to vote for? It's not about that. Gun owners may say, well, the conservatives are the best hope, so I'm always going to vote conservative or PPC, whatever the case may be. But a lot of them will stay home. And a lot of them will not bend over backwards if they don't feel they're getting something out of it. So if you want gun owners to show up, to donate, to vote, to volunteer, to do all of these things, you have to give them a reason to do it. So even if you might not pick up votes from the GTA centrist by standing up for the AR-15, you are going to lose a lot of votes of people that you need, people that are part of your base, if you don't talk to the base, if you don't rely on the base for support. 
So the cautionary tale in all of this is that if a politician or political leader is not going to speak up for you before they're in the office they desire, in this case, Canada's premiership, there's no guarantee they will speak up for you in office. Now, you may say there's no guarantee they will anyway, but you have a lot more leverage if you can hold up a promise they've made, a statement they've made previously, to compare it against whatever action they eventually take. And mark my words, this is not a controversial thing to do. This is not a controversial thing for someone to speak up on and say, well, actually, yes, we support gun ownership and law-abiding gun owners because they aren't the problem. Just as, as one example here, and I, I know I talked about a little bit of this on Tuesday, there was a, a great story in the Toronto Sun by Brian uh, Passifume. He says, Toronto Mall's handgun ban, illegal guns still flood city streets. And one of the issues I, I pointed out previously was that we need data collection, is that there is no national data for whichever guns are coming from legal origins versus illegal origins. And when we do have little isolated pockets of data, we know those data say, in fact, that it is smuggling that's the problem, where we're not talking about law-abiding gun owners or legal gun owners as having guns that are ending up being used in crime. In Toronto, the Toronto police maintain a guns-seized Twitter account. And if you look through this, which I actually hadn't seen before, so I'm glad that Brian did do the deep dive into it, he actually found something that kind of disqualifies what the government is claiming the problem is. 20 of the 23 weapons tweeted since January 1st were handguns, and all but one were prohibited. So that means, and granted this is a small sample size, just 23 guns seized this year, but of those, the guns were already illegal to buy, which means that prohibiting other things probably won't prevent people from buying those, given that it already isn't. But oh, John Tory loves this. John Tory's come out just very happy about the federal gun ban, as has Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver. The mayor of Montreal was positively gleeful, but she said it doesn't go far enough. She doesn't just want municipalities to be able to ban. No, she told uh, one of our researchers at True North that she actually wanted even more. She wanted a national handgun ban, but you better believe Montreal is probably going to be availing itself of its municipal right granted by the liberals to restrict these handguns. So you've got the biggest mayor or the mayors of the biggest cities in Canada that are jumping up and down saying, this is great. We, we can't wait to do this meaning that now the federal government has basically deputized municipal governments to start controlling criminal law. And I hope to goodness this gets challenged because this opens the door to a lot of other issues beyond firearms that we could have problems with. What if municipalities could start drafting their own immigration policy? What if municipal governments just become these individual city-states across Canada on so many key issues? Now, in some ways this sounds absurd, but I, I drive home the point that we can't have the liberal government just giving power to municipal governments just to do what they lack the political capital for at the federal level. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Here is a battle that is tough to figure out who to support, big tech or big government. <laughs> Seriously, I don't even know which side I'm on. I'm kind of leaning towards big tech in this case, which is problematic given that I've typically been very critical of big tech censorship. You may remember we even had that panel last week in which we looked at it from all angles, talking about how we solve this problem. 
But in Australia, there is a game of brinksmanship that, as I termed it anyway, going on between the Australian government and Facebook over an absurd bill passed by the government that would force tech companies to pay news publishers for the privilege of letting news be shared on Facebook. This is something that was very dangerous and, and I actually suspected, as did a lot of other people, would become a model for the Canadian approach. And it's why I've been so critical of this bill that Stephen Gilbo is advancing, as well as the online hate bill, which is dangerous for other reasons, that would force essentially licensing for online publishers, that would start regulating internet publishers the way that television and radio stations are, because it opens the door to government doing something like this down the road. So the reason I, I think this is something we need to keep in mind is that the government was trying to blame big tech companies for the erosion of local media by saying that Facebook is to blame somehow for no one wanting to buy a copy of the Sydney Morning Herald, which is incidentally a, a lovely paper. But the reality of this is that news publishers need Facebook far more than Facebook needs news publishers. So what did Facebook do? They banned Australians from sharing news. And they banned everyone in the world from sharing Australian news. So if you on Facebook as a Canadian or American or Brit, wherever you are outside of Australia, want to share an article from the Sydney Morning Herald or from Quillette or from ABC, the Australian ABC, I think the American ABC is still fine. You cannot do it. You can't share those links. And if you're in Australia, you can't share a story either. So Australians can at this point not get their news from Facebook. Now, of course, the Australian government has come out and said that they will not be intimidated by the tech giant. Uh, Scott Morrison, who's the prime minister, uh, decided to get a little bit cheeky. He said they're going to unfriend Australia. That's what he accused Facebook of doing. But here's the reality of it, is that Facebook's answer to this, to why it did it, was, I think, actually pretty fair. A statement from William Easton, the managing director for Facebook Australia and New Zealand, says, For Facebook, the business gain from news is minimal. News makes up less than 4% of the content people see in their newsfeed. Journalism is important to a democratic society, which is why we build dedicated free tools to support news organizations around the world in innovating their content for online audiences. Over the last three years, we've worked with the Australian government to find a solution that recognizes the reality of how services work. We've long worked toward rules that would encourage innovation and collaboration between digital platforms and news organizations. Unfortunately, this legislation does not do that. Instead, it seeks to penalize Facebook for content it didn't take or ask for. And here's the thing. If you are a big tech company, you're not publishing news. You're not publishing news, so it is actually the news publishers that are doing it and willingly putting their content on Facebook and Twitter. Australian news outlets are choosing to use Facebook to share their news. They're choosing to invest in social media teams to figure out the best way to make videos, the best way to share articles, the best way to share stories. They're doing that because they want to, because that's where the audience is. So Facebook is not taking this. Facebook is not taking clicks away. Facebook is not taking shares away. Facebook has offered for free a tool that allows news publishers to share their work. Facebook will also take money from these news publishers when they want to advertise. But again, these publishers who advertise, and not all of them do necessarily, are choosing. They're saying, yeah, you know what? We think that there is a great product here we are going to spend money on. 
So for government to say that Facebook needs to not just continue to provide that service, but must pay to provide that service is absolutely ridiculous. It's a violation of free market principles, and also it's a fundamental inversion of what's actually happening and how this dynamic between news and social media is unfolding. So this is very much the nuclear option, as Matthew Ingram, who's been great on these issues, has said. Uh, the company is blocking Australian news publishers and Australian users. I didn't realize when it was first announced that it would also extend to Australian outlets in other countries. So even if you are using a proxy server to, if you're an Australian, you're using a proxy server to uh, make it seem like you're accessing from uh, one place, you're still not going to be able to see Australian content because Australian platforms are banned. Claire Lehman, who's the editor-in-chief of Quillette, has said that they're going to look to move it outside of Australia. Now, I don't know if they were going to do that anyway or if it's just because of this, but the Australian government, by trying to demand Facebook play ball, has now deprived Australian citizens of the right to access news. Now, there are a lot of things that you can say about big tech companies, about their motivations, about what they care about, about what they value, and, and that's all fair game. Facebook operates in some fundamentally unfree parts of the world, and that is not lost on me. People are saying, well, Facebook operates in places that have uh, very strict government regulations on content, but in Australia, now they're going after real news. And that, that's a fair criticism. But the point is, is that governments that think they can back Facebook into a corner are sorely, sorely mistaken. And as was pointed out by uh, one friend of mine, David Clement, he said, I'm baffled that Canadian regulators are looking at this nightmare scenario and contemplating following Australia's lead. That's still happening. You've got a Canadian government that still thinks that social media companies can be vilified in this way. And even if you don't like them, and by the way, I, it bothers me that I have to take Facebook's side. But even if you don't like these companies, you have to understand that government forcing them to behave in a certain way is not going to make them better. It's only going to make things worse. And Facebook is one example. We haven't seen it from Twitter or Google yet. But Facebook is one example. It's just saying, you know what? This is just not worth it for us. And this is not, incidentally, without precedent. Remember back in March of 2019. So uh, how long was that? Probably six months or seven months before the 2019 federal election. Google announced that it would not allow any political advertising. Google would not allow any political parties or third-party groups to advertise, and the reason was they did not think they could be compliant with the new rules that the government had put in on political advertising. So for these companies, which have GDPs that are larger than nations, many, many nations, by the way, for them complying with these restrictions in Canada, in Australia, in even smaller countries is just not worth the hassle in a lot of ways. So who loses out? The citizens. The citizens in those countries that for whatever reason, for personal or professional reasons, were utilizing these platforms. They're the ones that lose out. Now, sure, if there were a major regulation by the EU or by the United States government, that might be of a size and scale that Facebook and Twitter and Google would have to take stock and say, okay, let's. what are we dealing with here? But we are like Nats, other countries like Australia and Canada and even the UK to some extent, in that it's just not worth the hassle. So for Facebook, it's easy to say, you know what, we're just not going to deal with it. As much as people like me who are news hounds think that news is like the only reason to use social media, 96% uh, 
of Facebook content is cat videos, personal updates, uh, uh, personal updates, memes, gifs, uh, prank videos, clips from TV shows. 96% is non-news. So capitulating to some government edict in Australia to have to pay for the privilege of letting just 4% of your content be on there is not worth it. Now, I don't know who backs down in this. I'd say the government will have to back down because Facebook has proven it just doesn't care. So now the media lobby that was pushing the Australian government is going to have to say, okay, we, we I'm not going to do an accent, don't worry. You know, we may have just overplayed our hand a wee, wee, wee little bit here. And good for Facebook in a way, because now other countries around the world are going to think twice before they go down the same road. And I hope Canada takes stock of that as well. We've got to take a break. One more segment before we wrap things up. Stay tuned. This is the Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show. It's been a while since we've had a, a little weird random story because there's been so much big to big stuff to talk about. But this one out of Montreal is interesting. Structube, which is a, a higher-end furniture store. It's actually, it, it's funny, it looks very sort of industrial and discounty. But the first time I went in there thinking that, I was looking around. I'm like, oh man, this stuff's uh, expensive. And they have, like so many boutique furniture designers, all of these different lines of products which have different names. Now, Structube is under fire because it decided to give Arab male names to a couple of products that you might not want your name attached to, namely trash cans. <laughs> yes, Structube had a $119 dual compartment stainless steel waste bin called Walid and a $59 garbage can called Wasim. And I don't know whether we should be more offended by the Arab male names for the garbage cans or the fact that it was $59 for a garbage can. Uh, but the company has apologized. They've vowed to be more careful in the future after people have said that, oh, they're going to boycott. They're going to go to Leon's. They're going to buy their products from elsewhere. Uh, Structube says it is insensitive. It was completely unintentional. And they'll be more thoughtful when naming products in the future. Now, the problem with stuff like this is that if you give things any names, they're going to be criticized for not being diverse enough. If you had the Sarah, the Catherine, the Maddie, the Cassie, the whatever, uh, people are going to say, oh, well, why are their product names all just white? Well, okay, well, let's diversify a bit. This is, you know, the Wang. This is the Walid. This is the, I don't whatever, this is the Raj. I mean, you could name all sorts of diverse names. And if you do that, you got to make sure that only the good products are getting the uh, diverse names and the crappy products, they can get the white male names. Like the Bob garbage can is fine. The John garbage can is fine, but you can't do the Walid or the Wasim. Now, I don't know if there was any malintent behind it. I don't know who was the one uh, at Structube HQ that had to do this, but it's like naming schools, which are all uh, being declared hate crimes years later. Uh, eventually, we're just only going to have numbers. Only numbers are fine. You can name things product one, product two, product three. Uh, hurricanes, even hurricane names have been put under the microscope in the last few years when people say that, oh, well, it's actually sexist because people don't take the women hurricanes seriously. So uh, this is because we all have this deep uh, bias against women and, and, and so on and so forth. So again, anytime one of these stories happens, it's fun to laugh at, but we are moving more and more into a society in which no one wants to do anything for risk of being canceled down the road. And with that, we will say farewell to you for today. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day.
Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.